Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. To celebrate the launch of our new login and feed management system, we are offering membership for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content from all of our podcasts, an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There's no need to enter a promo code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you very much. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Roscoff, coming to you from not too far from New York City. We have a great group coming from around the country today, starting with our friend, Graham Allison, who is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Dr. Allison is the Dillon Professor of Government at Harvard University, where he has taught for five decades, though you wouldn't know it to look at him from this picture. How are you doing today, Graham? Good. Thank you. We are also joined from Wyoming by our own Rosa Brooks. Rosa holds the Scott Ginsburg Chair in Law Policy at Georgetown University Law Center where she also serves as Associate Dean for Centers and Institutes. You love it when I put that in there. So, um, What are you going to do when I step down from this uh, very highfalutin administrative position? I don't know. It'll leave a big gap in all of our lives. <laughs> I think sure. it will. Um, uh, and we are joined, it looks to me like, from Washington, D.C., by David Sanger, White House and National Security Correspondent at the New York Times, where he has been reporting says here, for 138 years. Is that correct, David? It was um, slightly shorter than since Graham's been teaching, since Graham taught me. So you can blame me for anything that that I say. You can just say it was Graham's fault here. But David, I bet you're really jealous that you're not associate dean for centers and institutes. I'm not sure what a centers and institutes <laughs> associate dean does, but I think we should it's, devote it's a separate very important. I think very, we should very devote a, important. A separate a separate broadcast that I do also want to point out that Rosa looks like she is in the silo that we always think that she's building. I am. Home. And I, I I am well equipped. I have weapons. I have a site which is appropriate for our current era. Well, let's let's shift our focus a little bit away from Wyoming and Washington and Cambridge. A couple hours ago, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, landed on a plane that says United States of America on the side of it in Taipei. She did so against the wishes of the um, many in the Biden administration who felt that the timing of the visit was not helpful. She's the highest level U.S. official to make a journey like this in 25 years, the, the, the previous high-level visit coming from Newt Gingrich, 1997, when he was still Speaker of the House. The Chinese have not been happy about this at all. I'm sure uh, David will talk about this in a moment or two, but 
Her visit was corresponded with a denial of service attack to the website of the Taiwanese president on a bunch of Chinese aircraft flying closer to Taiwan. The argument against her going is doesn't really help Taiwan, um, may provoke a difficult situation. What do you think about it all, Graham? Oh, I think in one word, it's reckless. The uh, speaker's refusal to listen to the advice of the U.S. military, the Biden administration, actually many of the allies whom she's going to visit is, I'd say, worse than reckless. It's irresponsible. Reminded me of uh, a crazy Archduke in 1914, June, who insisted on going to Sarajevo. So I would say, even though I'm a great admirer of the speaker in general, this was dumb. David, you covered the Archduke's trip to Sarajevo. How do you feel about this? (laughs) I would have to say that the Archduke may have had more of a rationale here for going to going to Sarajevo than I'm I'm certain this the speaker has. Look, I understand what she was trying to do. And first of all, Nancy Pelosi, just to put this in some historic comparison, has had a long record of talking and thinking about China, particularly in the human rights arena. It's worth remembering that she went to Tiananmen Square, I think, two years after the killings on the square and unfurled a banner on the square in memory of those lost there that forever endeared her to the Chinese leadership, as you can imagine. And she said in April that she wanted to go to Taiwan on what had been a planned trip then to Asia. I think she got COVID, and so we got delayed. A couple of administration officials have pointed out to me that the Chinese didn't say a whole lot about this in April. Now, maybe the trip had not gotten far along enough in the planning for them to actually react. But it does raise the interesting question, why are the Chinese reacting so now? And they could just sort of ignore this, right? They could issue a ritual denial in the the daily foreign ministry briefing. And the answers, I think, are a fewfold. First of all, we're in a different strategic situation than we were in our environment than we were a year ago or even earlier this year. Secondly, Xi is much closer to the party Congress uh, this fall, where he will be anointed for a third term and maybe a life term. Thirdly, the CIA and others, as we've reported in the past week or so, have shortened their timeline of when they think that China may be interested in really putting the squeeze on Taiwan, not necessarily a full amphibious invasion, but they believe that the United States may move to go arm Taiwan more quickly than they had anticipated because of the lessons of Ukraine. And Graham and I were discussing this yesterday, and so far, the U.S. provision of of arms to Taiwan has been steady, but not particularly vigorous. And I think the Chinese may want to get ahead of Taiwan being armed up and think that they have a greater military advantage sooner rather than later. All of those could be factors in why they've reacted. But frankly, David, I don't think you're going to see a significant reaction from China until after she leaves. And she's probably only staying there a day looking at her schedule. That's correct. It looks like it looks like she'll spend the night there and then leave towards the end of the day tomorrow. Rosa, what's your take? 
Well, I'm I'm glad that Graham and David take the this is reckless position because that was my reaction as well. And I and I keep bumping up against uh, you know, friends, even in the Democratic foreign policy establishment who seem to be going, Oh, this is great, this is awesome. <laughs> I thought, oh no, this is not really a good idea. I am I do wonder about one thing, and 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 maybe Graham and David have a better sense of this than I do. Clearly, the administ- Biden administration's in a bit of a spot insofar as, you know, they can't say, no, you can't go, nor do they want to say, you go girl, for all the reasons that David just reviewed. It's a really complicated moment. At the same time, it did occur to me to wonder, and maybe I'm just being too cynical here. It did occur to me to wonder whether the, at least some of the Biden administration may see this as having a silver lining, which is to say, they see it as a way to test China's reactions without having to own what's going on too much. They have an exit strategy because it's not them. They get to say, oh, it wasn't us. It was that crazy Nancy Pelosi. You know her. She's always doing wacky things. But at the same time, they get to sort of stand back and say, okay, how are they going to react? You know, is this going to be something where there is a real risk of escalation? Or is this going to be something where actually they don't want to make a big fuss? I, I did wonder whether they might not be a little bit thinking, we didn't want her to go, but given that she's going, we may learn some useful things from how they respond in a way that is actually not that high stakes, because I agree with David, I don't think the Chinese want to turn this into, they have to make noises, but but I don't think they want to turn this into something huge. But to the extent that we can measure their reaction. I, I did wonder whether some of the folks in the Biden administration aren't thinking, oh, you know, let this will be this will be interesting to see what they do and what they don't do. Uh, and that will tell us something about what they may do and not do in the future. I would point out the following. Nancy Pelosi did arrive on a plane that said United States of America on the side, which means it was an Air Force plane provided by the Department of Defense. And she is being supported by the military and by the diplomatic service on the trip. And the administration doesn't have to do that. And so I may not quite yet have sunk to the depths of cynicism where Rose spends <laughs> most of her time. I'm but, always uh, there. But, 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 but what, do you, what do you think, Graham? First, Rosa is being a little too, too cynical here. I think the administration made a, as much of an effort as it could to rein her in, short of the president, as far as I can understand it, asking her directly for a favor. As Biden said, he respects the fact that it's a separate branch of government. And while he could have, uh, if you would, you know, I mean, I think if I had been there, I might have tried to find a way technically to delay this for some period of time. because The plane is broken. It, well, the plane is broken. Or if the military says this, in, this includes some serious safety threat, a uh, leader of the House can't order or command an airplane. But then I think once they failed, in their efforts to reverse her view, they have been trying to put the best face on it. So I would say, I would suspect more leaks of something like that after. And if you looked at Jake's talking points, they were about as good as you can do in a situation in which this is not normal, as David said at the beginning. I think the other other point, uh, the game ain't over till it's over. And my bet is we're going to see a much more substantial a Chinese military response before this is over. My bet is that we'll see action by them 
that is unprecedented militarily in basically ringing the bells about the threat that it can pose to Taiwan. I was part of the government in the Clinton administration when we did this in 95, 96. And there, at that time, China was weak and poor, and its military was uh, minuscule. Uh, the U.S. sent up two carriers. They were forced to back down. They felt humiliated, as Prince Kokoff said at the time. From this day forward, watch what they do. And what they've done is build up a capability to prevent us doing that again. And they've succeeded. So I would say that was 95, 96. This time, I could imagine, and I think they've already provided some signals about this, you know, live fire exercises. You could conduct them all around the island in which case shipping is substantially disrupted, or missile tests, which is what they did in 95, 96, in which case, who wants to fly an airplane you know, through an area that is conducting live fire missile tests? So my bet is they're eager not for it to get out of control, but that they will send a bigger and stronger signal that this is, uh, uh, you know, you've crossed one of our big lines, we'll cross one of yours. Yeah. There are also some big non-kinetic options. I mean, Taiwan's completely dependent on undersea cables for their networking. Interrupting one of those wouldn't be all that difficult. It's part of the Chinese planning if they ever did get into a full-scale conflict. China may determine that that redounds too much on them as well, because a lot of those cables connect them to the world. But you mentioned before, David, that you saw some relatively unsophisticated, basically denial of service attacks on the websites of the of the Chinese president. That could have been a, a Chinese group that isn't all that linked to the government. But certainly if the government wants to go, Chinese government wants to do more, they have some very capable hacking teams that can send the message. The big question is the degree to which they want to interrupt Taiwan economically. They're as dependent as we are on the output of Taiwan Semiconductor, the most sophisticated semiconductor maker in the world. A lot of their economic output, a lot of China's economic output for high-end goods is linked to Taiwanese investment, Taiwanese manufacturing. So I think there are some guardrails here. The question is how much they're willing to go blow through them. You know, as David points out, Rosa, Taiwan is, as Saudi Arabia, you know, maybe to oil, Taiwan is to semiconductors, only more so, right? Taiwan is responsible for something like 64% of the foundry revenues for semiconductors, half of, you know, all the semiconductor fabrication revenues in the world. Any disruption in those flows would be devastating for all economies everywhere. And I think that gets to the bigger picture. The bigger picture here is something is coming. There is some growing tension in this relationship. I spoke to a senior administration official a while back, and that person said, although they didn't expect an invasion of Taiwan in the next several years, that a, 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 a kind of straits crisis, a la the one that... Uh, we all lived through in 95, uh, 96, is something that we could see in the next 18 months, which could have an economic effect, it could have a market effect, and so forth. And we may not see the full you know, connection between what's happening right now and that, but that could be the next big crisis this administration faces, couldn't it, Rosa? 
Yes, absolutely. And and the the Chinese have invested very heavily in building up their military capabilities to the point where I think many U.S. defense analysts think that the U.S. could not win in a conflict with China, or at any rate, the the cost to the U.S. would be would be crippling, cripplingly high. Which is not to say that I think China wants to start an armed conflict for for many of the reasons you've just discussed. The economic devastation to China would be as great as the economic devastation to to the U.S. and to other countries. But at the same time, we're we're in this uneasy moment where the balance of power clearly has been shifting in some significant ways to the point where the Chinese no longer no longer look at it and think. We can't do that because we would definitely lose, but instead are thinking we might win, but the cost would be pretty high. So we have to be careful. Let's see what we can do to keep things below that threshold, you know, just below that threshold while doing everything we can right up to that threshold, knowing that the U.S. is less likely than it was in the past to to respond really aggressively because they know that we know that we are in a weaker position with regard to, to them militarily and economically in terms of dependence on Taiwanese uh, semiconductors, et cetera, and Chinese technologies, and David has written a lot about this than we were in the past. Um, so, I, you know, it is everything in the world right now is is a little bit alarming. This is up there. You know, the Ukraine crisis is not gone. It may be gone from our front pages, but it's certainly not gone in terms of its impact either on the global economy or the potential escalatory risks over there. Um, a crisis with China would really stretch our capabilities, not just militarily, I also mean sort of human capabilities. The human brain can only process so much. And Jake Sullivan is a smart guy. Joe Biden is a smart guy. You know, these are all, these are all smart, capable people, but our little tiny brains, uh, we don't, we don't have those cool semiconductors to make our brains work better. And I don't think that we're very good. Anybody is very good at at sort of keeping track of so many extraordinarily complex crises at the same time. I do have one question to throw out to the rest of you. All of this makes me think, what the hell does Nancy Pelosi think she's doing? You know, why does this make sense to her? I mean, I, I get it. You know, the Chinese record on human rights is horrific. I, I absolutely right there with her on that. But what is her logic? You know, what do you think her logic is? I saw her post piece, which wasn't particularly persuasive, but so I'm curious uh, as to what you all think is going on in, in her mind and the minds of, of her senior staff about why this actually makes sense right at this moment. Good question. I wanted to make two points if I could, David, because first, I think raising this up to ask about the bigger picture, as Rosa did, is just right. But on your final question, what's this about? I tried to think hard about this. And as I say, I've been a great admirer of hers and know her personally over, over decades, I'm afraid this is an ego trip. I'll leave it at that for that. For the bigger picture, which David asked about and which you rightly addressed, I think you have to think about the bandwidth of any government at any particular time. And to say that the Biden administration is stressed currently with the economy at home, the upcoming elections, and Ukraine, yes, they just need one more thing. So no brain can process everything. And third point, I don't think we can understand this crisis. And David, as you said, the coming crisis. So this is not going to be over. This is going to happen over and over, I would bet, for the next year, decade, assuming we're successful. But on the big canvas, 
what's the essence of this relationship between China and the U.S.? And it is a rivalry, the greatest rivalry of all times, in which a meteoric rising power is seriously threatening the position of a colossal ruling power. Well, I think historically we know how that normally turns out. Somebody ought to write a book about that. Well, I think that would be a good topic. And if all we can manage is diplomacy as usual, and this I think is a great example, then we should express history as usual. So I think the default in this is a very, very, very bad outcome, which is why then reckless risk-taking is bad. Now, we lived through this, a number of such crises in the Cold War, and wise statesmen found ways to constrain the competition to keep it short of a hot war. Well, that was a fantastic success. That's not normal. That was extraordinary. So if we settle for normal, I think we get through this crisis. We get through maybe the next one. But I asked myself, if I were in Beijing, an advisor to Xi, and he says, what the hell is going on here? Now, Americans are not very good at strategic empathy, but in the class that David and I teach, we have a class on strategic empathy. So I try to look at it from the other guy's point of view. Imagine you're in his shoes or how does it feel? What's going on in his life? He's arranging the pieces for his equivalent of an election, which will be a coronation in October, putting all the power players in place. Actually, that's what they're doing in a secret Politburo meeting, a private meeting this next two weeks, running up to his coronation. So the timing of this, to say the least, is not helpful. This is like giving him a poke in the eye with a sharp stick at a point when he's got something else that he's focused on. So I I think that the takeaway from this, from their point of view, is either that the Americans are unalterably our adversary, or alternatively, that their politics is so out of control on Taiwan that this is inevitable. So we should just get ready for this as it, when it happens. Graham, which do you think is worst? If the Chinese decide that we're their unalterable enemy or if they decide that we're just so messed up and so unpredictable that we're, we're dangerous for that reason? I would say, hey, no, damned if we do and damned if we don't. That's a pretty, pretty sad set of alternatives, but they may be it, yeah. So, David, before we take our little mini break here, I want to ask you a question that is a subset of a subset of these questions, because I think it's been under-addressed a little bit, although uh, credit to our friend Tom Friedman, who in a column that he wrote in in which he took issue with the speaker's choice of going down, uh, he noted that the United States right now is in the midst of a kind of delicate diplomatic game with China that doesn't have anything to do with the Straits, it has to do with Ukraine. And the United States is working very hard to keep the Chinese from resupplying the Russians with a bunch of weapons that could tip the, the balance in what's going on in Ukraine. And so I think from the point of view of the administration, this is something else where you don't want to upset the apple cart because it could have a consequence in Ukraine. What do you think of all that, David? Well, so far, U.S. officials have said publicly and privately that they have not seen any material support from the Chinese to the Russians in the Ukraine war. We have seen some basic 
support in the information warfare side of this, kind of backing the, the Russian justifications, but no arms. And it was notable that when the Russians needed drones to go fight in Ukraine, they went first to the Chinese, got turned down, and then went to Iran. So the essence, if I read it correctly, of Tom Friedman's column was not a time to bring the Chinese on side to the Russians. I'm a little more skeptical that the Chinese want to get caught out allying directly with the Russians in this war. I think they felt a little bit deceived by Putin, certainly felt that Putin had oversold his capabilities to go take Ukraine. They may be having some second thoughts about whether they signed up with the right guy when they did the relationship with no limits agreement in February, just at the start of the Olympics in China, when when Putin went to the Olympics. That said, I think that if you go up 30,000 feet, I think the bigger risk here, and it's one written a little bit about, and and David Leonhardt deals with very nicely in um, his morning newsletter uh, for the Times this morning, it's worth looking at, is what happens if the Chinese, the Russians, and the Iranians, who don't like each other terribly much, all come to the conclusion that Graham is right, I realize how difficult a conclusion that would be for all of them, and that we're an easily overwhelmed system, that we can barely handle what's on our plate right now, and that simultaneous challenges from China, Russia, and Iran, not hard to imagine over the next six months or a year, might be to their advantage because it would spread us too thin and we couldn't really focus on any of them. And I think that may be the bigger risk that the Pelosi trip involves. And it is certainly part of the fact that the administration briefed Pelosi and her staff pretty extensively about the risks, I think, more narrowly focused on the trip itself. It was heartening to see the Russian, that the Chinese did nothing to try to get in the way of her landing today. But I'm in agreement with Graham and Rosa that the, the larger moment for the Chinese may come well after she's left. Excellent point. You're also in agreement with me on that. It may not be intentional, but I agree with you. Oh, okay. Um, it wasn't uh, intentional. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I know. I know, I know that always makes it uncomfortable. But um, I do want to say, by the way, that when I made my uh, little uh, joking reference that somebody ought to write a book about this, of course, five years ago, Graham wrote a book called Destined for War, Can America and China Escape the Thucydides Trap, which I recommend to anybody who has not thought to take the U.S.-China relationship and put into a historical perspective. We're now going to take the little break that we typically take within a podcast and say goodbye to the folks in the general public and say, you know, if you want to listen to the whole podcast, you should go become a member. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on the membership button, and for something like the price of a latte a month, you could you can get all the bonus content that we've got from all of our podcasts, which are covering a wide range of things now. And I can uh, tell you it's a range that will only get wider and wider over the course of the months ahead. So I encourage you to do that. For the rest of you who are our members, stand by, and we'll be back in one moment. This is Kavita Patel, co-host of the Words Matter podcast. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms and what our leaders are saying and doing about them. In a world filled with alternative facts and fake news, 
We try to cut through the noise to bring you the facts about issues like the Supreme Court. We've got the votes and screw the rest of you. Reproductive rights. What a failure of our system. What a failure. COVID. We had a million people or more who died, more than we've seen in our wars. And it's like it shrugged off. Subscribe today to get our latest episode and join us each Friday to get our latest analysis. See you then.